Church, yeah, that's great. Nine o'clock and we're already awake. That's awesome. Um, it's a joy to be with you all. I love any opportunity to gather uh, with saints, brothers and sisters of King Jesus uh, together, um, but especially when I get the opportunity to teach the word. I don't take that lightly. Uh, my name is Joel McCarty. I'm the pastor of Missional Life here for those that don't know me. Um, I'm not the normal uh, guy up here teaching. That would be Jamie Nettles, who you just saw. He's our pastor of Preaching and Vision. He's actually in India right now or on his way. I'm not sure if they've made it there yet. Um, he's with an organization called Never Thirst and kind of doing some vision type stuff and just kind of seeing what we've done with Never Thirst. So Never Thirst is a global partner of ours. They build wells to bring clean water to villages that don't have it, but they work closely with local pastors to hopefully bring living water, right? And so that's the goal. So he's getting to go see some of the wells that we have um, donated money to help build. And so that's exciting. You'll hear more about Never Thirst in the Christmas, um, the Advent season. And so you'll get to hear more about that later. Y'all can be praying for him as he's gone. Um, as we mentioned already, we're back in Mark today. We're gonna finish up Mark chapter four and work through Mark chapter five all the way through verse 20. So there's a fair amount to cover, but we're gonna have fun. So we've already seen that Mark is intentionally and gradually revealing Jesus as the messianic king, right, to his people. Um, last week, we saw him specifically with parables, actually the last two weeks, and dealing with his disciples and telling his disciples the secret of the kingdom, right? They get kind of the inside track. And that's intentional because we're going to get to see his disciples some more today in our text. Um, last week, we ended our sermon seeing that even though the kingdom of God starts seemingly small and insignificant, that it will be unstoppable. And so he tells this parable to the people, and then he pulls aside his disciples. And he again, where the text tells us that he tells them the secret of the kingdom, he explains to them everything and that's where we're going to pick up our text today in Mark chapter 4. So a lot of times when I'm preaching a sermon, I like to tell you up front where I'm going. And today we're going to do it just a little different. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you one main question from our text. And I'm going to ask you to keep this question at the forefront of your mind as we walk through this text today. And then we hope that our text will answer the question, that main question that we're asking so let's read Mark 4, verse 41. They just read this real quick. This is the response of the disciples after Jesus stills a storm by the word of his mouth. And so in Mark 4, 41, it says, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so the question, the main question I wanna pose to you that our text seeks to answer is, who then is this? This is our question for today. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person who we're getting to experience and read about? The disciples had experienced something so glorious, so terrifyingly awesome that it begged a greater discovery. It begged a deeper exploration. We all understand that we work this way as humans, right? If you've ever been on scrolling on Facebook and you've come across a viral video and you're like, who is this kid? Like, you know, I don't know if you've seen the one, this kid singing acapella, it's like six different videos. It's like, who is this kid? I need to learn more, right? Or maybe you're watching the Olympics and you see a great sporting feat and you say, who is that person, right? And we've actually gone and we've Googled to find more about it, right? We're watching The Voice and we see an amazing voice that we like. It speaks to us and we want to learn about them and we learn where they're from and we learn all these things. We say, who is that? This is what's going on in this text today. 
I submit to you that there's something greater than all of that combined, and this something is King Jesus. And here's the thing. He demands that we explore him. His work demands that you can't look away and remain indifferent when you come into contact with this Jesus. And so today we find ourselves standing with the disciples asking the question, who then is this? There's two main stories in our text today. The first one we're going to see is about Jesus calming a storm. That's going to take us through the end of Mark chapter 4. And then the first story in Mark chapter 5 is about Jesus healing a man possessed by demons. So the way we're going to go through this sermon is we're going to explore each story. We're going to seek for each story to answer, give us an answer to the question we're asking. And then at the end, we're going to kind of bring it all home and see how this applies to us in this already not yet broken world that we live in. So as we dive into our text and we look at our first story, Again, remember, we're asking the question, who then is this referring to Jesus? And so I really want you to try to enter these stories and see yourself in these stories. And so Mark 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So this is the same exact day as Jesus had just finished talking to his disciples and telling him these parables. And that's going to be significant because we're going to get to see their response in a minute. So they get in a boat to head over to the other side. We see this kind of weird detail that there's actually other boats. We've kind of read this story and thought it was just Jesus and the disciples. There's actually other boats on the sea around them. Jesus was getting popular at this time. And so these simple details confirm that this is an eyewitness account. This is not just theological. This is a historical fact. Jesus was a a historical figure. And that's important because we can't just overlook him and ignore him. And so they're in this boat, and the next thing we're told is that this storm just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's called a windstorm in the text. It's literally a, literally a hurricane, right? And because of, we've seen a couple of hurricanes recently in the States, like we're familiar with what a hurricane is like. And so this storm comes up. It causes waves to crash against the boat. The boat begins to fill with water, which it's in danger of sinking. And I want you to imagine the scene with me for a minute, okay? Some of these disciples are very experienced on the sea, and some of them are not, right? So most likely the ones that were fishermen started giving directions and giving orders and saying, okay, let's start getting the water out of the boat, all hands on deck. We're trying to just survive at this point. And so they're just feverishly working hard. And somebody, we don't know who it was, points out, where's Jesus? Like, what is going on, right? This is like me when my wife is prepping and cleaning the home for missional community, and I'm like watching sports in the other room. She's like, I'm doing all this work. Where's, like, we don't like that, right? And so they find out that Jesus is actually just taking a nap. I mean, that probably angered them even further, right? I mean, we're going to know from the text that they don't actually believe that Jesus has power to calm the storm. That's not what they were wanting. They just wanted him to pull his fair share of weight, right? Like, get out here, help us get water out of the boat. So they're upset. Jesus is simply sleeping on the boat. The disciples go to him and actually rebuke him. They use his proper name, like teacher, right? I mean, my son will call me daddy, but then he'll complain about something, right? Or rebuke me for something I did. So there's not really actually much respect going on. They say, teacher, don't you care about us? We're dying over here. And if we're going to die, you should at least be like working hard with us too. Like hop in and pull your weight. You can't just chill and hang out and sleep, right? I thought he should be helping. So how does Jesus respond to this? Much better than I would have, right? He's woken up from a good nap. He's been teaching all day. He finally gets a form of privacy on a boat at least, even though there's other boats around. He's taking a nap, right? He's woken up from his nap, 
and he gets in trouble by his followers, the people who he's supposed to be teaching and leading. And so his disciples rebuke him, and in turn, Jesus, instead of rebuking the disciples, which he rightfully could have and should, well, I can't say Jesus should have done that, because he didn't, and so he knew what he was going to do, but he rightfully could have done. Instead, he actually rebukes the storm. So he wakes up, and he rebukes the storm, and he tells it, peace, be still. Now, when I was a kid and I heard this story growing up, I saw that it's kind of one command. This is actually two different commands. So he's telling the wind to peace, to stop blowing, and he's telling the sea to be still. And so we know from the text that the wind and the waves obey. The wind immediately ceases to blow. The sea immediately becomes perfectly still, which is hard to imagine, right? I mean, even if the wind had stopped, there would still be some waves and some ripple effects, but no, it stops as well. And the way this is written in the Greek, I want you to see something. This is extremely definitive that we don't see in our translation. But it's like him saying, be still and keep on being still. Be still and stay still. This is definitive. This is a definitive command and the wind and the waves obey. A couple things we need to notice about what's going on. This language of rebuke is the same exact language that we see used when Jesus rebukes demons. So there's something deeper going on here. It's literally like him performing an exorcism on the storm and on the cosmic powers here that we see at work. This storm, this disaster is a result of the fall and Jesus speaks authoritatively to it. He knows that behind all storms and behind this storm, behind all this chaos is one being, one evil person, the Satan. And the storm has no choice but to obey. Here's another thing you need to see about this. There was no calling on a higher power. There was no conjuring up a name with which to cast out this storm. See, in the ancient Near East during this time, we have many examples of formulas and incantations to try to control the weather or try to control storms. But every single one of them call on a higher power. But not with Jesus. There's no calling on a higher power Because church, he is the higher power. You need to see that this is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel in flesh. Yes, fully human, sleeping on a boat, but fully God, controlling the wind and the waves with the word of his mouth. And as we read this, we're reminded of the psalm that we read earlier. Psalm 107, a psalm that spoke of Yahweh who calmed the sea and controlled all of creation. We're also reminded of the Exodus story of God's people when he brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And if we have eyes to see that this is the Son of God, if we have ears to hear that this is the creator of all, we should not be shocked that the wind and the waves obey the command of his voice. Because after all, were they not created by the command of this same voice? This is not the first time that God brought order out of chaos. He did it at creation through the word of Jesus, and here we see it happen again through this Messiah, this King Jesus. The storm is literally muzzled and brought to a dead calm, and not just brought to a dead calm, but told to stay calm. And so in our story, the storm is now calm. I'm sure those other boats, remember we kind of forgot about them? They're probably thinking, what the heck is going on? Like, this is crazy. We've never seen a storm come up so suddenly and calm so suddenly. And then we turn to the disciples. They're probably standing there, jaws open, also wondering what the heck is going on. Dead silent. And Jesus breaks the silence with two questions. Mark chapter 4, verse 40. 
Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Remember, these are the disciples that he'd been given the secret of the kingdom of God. He's been spending time with. They've seen him do so much good work. And he says, have you still no faith? He doesn't rebuke them. He just simply asks them a question to get them to think. One translation says, where is your faith? And I love that. Because it's showing us that it's not about the amount of their faith, but it's about the object of their faith. And there's a difference there. Because the disciples had faith, they just had more faith in the storm than they did in Jesus. But what you also need to see that it wasn't just the fact that they lacked faith in Jesus' power, they lacked faith in the fact that Jesus cared. That's what they actually got upset at Jesus for. Don't you care about us, Jesus? I mean, we can sympathize, right? Often, I know I wonder if Jesus is powerful enough to handle my situations, and if I'm finally convinced that, yes, he's powerful enough because I've seen him work, when I'm in the midst of the storm, the next question I, I ask is, do you care? Where are you, Jesus? If you really cared, why am I walking through this storm? And the disciples are left standing there wondering what just happened. You can imagine the silence. Jesus probably asked the questions, shuffles through them, and I don't know for sure, maybe went back to taking a nap right? The disciples are left standing there, nothing but the sounds of a peaceful, perfect night on the ocean, on the sea, sorry, and their own thoughts. So how do they respond in Mark 4.41? Mark tells us, they were filled with great fear, so there's a terrifying awesomeness about this, and they say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're filled with great fear, and they ask the question we've been asking this whole time, who then is this? I mean, we kind of like the Jesus that was going to come on the scene and help us defeat the Romans. You know, maybe hopefully one day would give us a place of honor when he sets up a physical kingdom. I like the Jesus that's going to bring me comfort and happiness, and that can make my life secure. But the one who calms even the winds and the seas... I mean, this seems a little much, it's a little terrifying, it's a little too much power. Should any one person have access to that much power? They would have seen the sea as uncontrollable chaos. They would have seen the sea as having great power, but this king simply says with no incantations, peace be still, speaks with authority, and the wind and seas obey, and I don't know what to do with this. And so we see from this story the first answer to our question, who then is this? This Jesus is a king who brings cosmic shalom. He is a king who brings cosmic shalom. Let me explain this word shalom. We kind of translate it as peace. I think wholeness might be a little better translation because it's not just the absence of disruption and the absence of fear. It is when everything flourishes, when everything has order and has a place and a purpose See, remember, the sea would have been seen as a place of chaos because ever since the fall, ever since the fall, the wind and sea had only brought destruction instead of construction. It tore down instead of building up because it was controlled by the demonic effects of the fall, but not when King Jesus is around. The wind and waves are put into place by a loving ruler, this King Jesus. There's something greater going on. They're told to do what they were originally designed to do, which is to be still and stay still. He is the true human who stewards over creation perfectly well. Jesus brings cosmic shalom. He is proving that he is not only king of the individual and over your heart, but he is king over all of creation. 
So who then is this Jesus? He is a king who brings cosmic shalom. Let's go into our second story, and we're going to see if we can answer the question even further. So as Mark does, immediately they get out of the boat in Mark 5-2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So Mark just moves from story to story. There's this man with an unclean spirit that runs up to Jesus. And already with this man in a Gentile area, we're starting to get hints that the kingdom of God welcomes people that society has placed on the fringes. We're going to see that more fully next week, but we get hints this week. In the text, I want you to see the graphic description that Mark gives us of this man that is controlled by demons. And so I'm just going to read it for you, verses 3 through 5, and I want you to try to again enter into this story. The storms had just been calmed. They, next day, they're over here. They get out of the boat. And we see this man come up to Jesus. And this is the description that Mark gives us. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. There is no one who can bind the forces of the strong man. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man had gotten progressively worse. We see this in the text. I mean, at one point, this man had a family and friends. He most likely had a wholesome life, had a contributive place in society, but this demonic presence begins to infect him, and no one knows what to do with him. They would have labeled him probably mentally ill, and so they just get him outside the city. And we really can't blame them. What do you do? They weren't strong enough. They tried controlling him, but they could not control this man controlled by demons. He gets to a point where night and day he simply roams the graveyard and the mountains cutting himself. At this point, he's simply a shell of a human, barely recognizable This cutting seems to indicate that the demons were trying to get him to take his own life. They're doing everything they can to destroy the image-bearing nature of this man because this was a human that God had created to place in this world, to flourish, to bring about his kingdom. But these demons are attacking him and wanting him to end his own life. And just as the wind and the waves were acting out in rebellion against its God-given place in creation, so the demons were causing this man to do the same. But the difference between our last story and this story is that this story is extremely personal in nature. We get to focus on this man up close and personal and what will happen to his soul. There is a battle going on. So what happens when this man meets Jesus? We're not going to have time to read the whole thing, but I want to kind of summarize the conversation. It's a conversation between this man and Jesus, but it's actually the demon, the demonic presence talking to Jesus. And so basically the demons try a last ditch attempt to exercise authority over Jesus when they say his name. That's what's going on in this culture. They try to even conjure up God. I adjure you by God, right? To cast him out is actually ironic and uh, humorous. They're trying to do what Jesus said could not be done, which is to cast out, you know, if a house divided against itself, it won't stand. It does not work. Jesus twisted on them and asked the demon its name. Of course, he already knew that, but he wanted to make a show of this, and the demons cannot refuse to answer. The last thing you wanted to do to give up your authority was to tell someone your name in this culture, and so Jesus asked. They respond saying they are legion. Now, this was a Roman army, which could have meant three to six thousand. 
So scholars differ on that. Three to 6,000 demons, though, that are attacking this man. This is a massive attack. The seriousness of the situation grows. Of course, we know that this is no match for Jesus. We've heard this story before. Again, in this exorcism, there's no calling on a higher power. There's no incantations. Mark actually records the command for the demons to come out as simply an afterthought in the text. For Jesus had said, demons, come out of him. The demons actually end up leaving of their own free will because they don't have a choice. They know that. And so what do they do? They go into this herd of pigs. There's 2,000 pigs is what the text tells us, a herd of pigs. This is near a cliff, and they go into this, these pigs and run off the cliff. Um, now, Jason Jenkins really wanted me to tell you this, that the pigs committed suicide. But I told him I would not tell a joke that bad from the stage. So I figured I'd just blame it on him, and those of you that thought it was corny can blame him, and those that thought it was funny can give me credit. So anyways, I only said that because Jason's here. I was, so, uh, <laughs> But seriously, right, what's going on with these pigs, right? Why are these pigs even here in the text? There's a lot of opinions out there. You can read many scholars who have many opinions. To me, there seems to be two main ones that make the most sense and serve our purpose well today. First of all, they show us the power and the purpose of the demons. Again, this was a great force that had great power and was seeking to destroy this man. And so God would not allow them to destroy this man. And so they go and destroy the pigs. They force the pigs to commit suicide, right? The second thing, the other thing that's important is that these pigs represented great wealth and economic prosperity. Now, without understanding the culture, we would not get this, but you have to understand that these pigs represented great economic prosperity. We're going to soon see that the loss of this herd of pigs was caused for great concern due to what it meant in this culture in terms of wealth. We're reminded of the question that Jesus will pose later in Mark 8:36, and we can't miss this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus in this story makes it abundantly clear that his personal care for those that are his is far greater than we could ever dream. If the last story left a hint of doubt that Jesus cared for us, then this story makes it very clear that Jesus will go to any extent necessary to rescue those that are being succumbed to forces of evil. In this story, Jesus is continuing to plunder his kingdom, to bind the strong man, to take back forcefully what is rightfully his from Satan, the evil one. And so again, enter this story. Imagine the chaos that is taking place. 2,000 pigs shrieking, running off a cliff. This is pretty chaotic. It would have been loud and noisy, stampeding off a cliff. They drown, and again, we're left in this kind of stunned, awkward silence. Like, what just happened? What is going on? And we pull our attention back to this man. This demoniac who had been possessed and had no hope had been shunned by society. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, we see that the demon-possessed man, yes, the same one, just in case you were doubting, the one that had the legion, three to 6,000 demons inside of him, was now sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. We're again asking the question, who then is this? We with the herdsmen here, I mean, it's essentially what they were saying. They were afraid. They don't know what to do with this Jesus that doesn't fit into their presuppositions. 
I mean, yeah, this demoniac was a nuisance, but we had kind of figured out how to control him and get him out of our life, and we could still kind of be comfortable. But the, this Jesus character comes and messes everything up. Who does he really think he is? You messed up our way of life, our comfort, our security, our economic prosperity. Jesus, you're simply getting in the way. And so what do they say? They beg him to leave. Just get out. You've made a big enough mess already. Just leave. Take your powers and go elsewhere. See, those who don't have ears to hear the kingdom would rather that someone stay enslaved to the powers of darkness than for that person's freedom to cost them. I can see myself in that. See, the kingdom of God does not advance without messing up and disrupting the systems of this age, economic or otherwise. When heaven meets earth, it will necessarily cause a disruption. And it will be good news to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, but to those who do not, it is bad news. It is dangerous, it is an inconvenience, and it is in the way. And so they beg Jesus to leave. We see zero argument on the part of Jesus. He had accomplished his mission, he complies, and he's on his way. What about this man, though? Remember, this man, he does have ears to hear and eyes to see the kingdom. So we see this clear, stark contrast between the, the towns, the herdsmen who were begging him to leave, and then this demoniac who begs Jesus to stay with him. So he wants to actually stay with Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He tells him no, which seems to be weird, but we're gonna see why. Instead, he tells him to go tell everyone about the mercy that had been shown. He tells him to simply go home. Now, this is actually extremely significant. First of all, this is the first time we see Jesus telling someone who is healed to go declare the healing to everybody he sees. Now, this is in a Gentile area, so most likely that's why there's no messianic expectations that they would try to take and make him king in the wrong time and wrong manner. But it's also extremely significant that the first person Jesus trusts with his message is a Gentile former demoniac. The upside down way of the kingdom is again revealing itself. I mean, I would have picked one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders who spoke with authority, but not Jesus. He knows what he's doing much more than I do. But the second thing is also pointing out that this Jesus has brought peace and wholeness to this man. Remember a few minutes ago, going home for this man wasn't an option. He had been cast out, but Jesus has now restored him. Yes, physically, yes, emotionally, but also societally. Do you see how he's bringing shalom to this man? Not just the absence of the demons, but now he's back to his family, back to his friends, and he can actually go home and tell the story of Jesus to those who were closest to him, to those who would have seen the change that was brought in this man. What would that have been like when he walks back into the city? We're told that when he tells them, they marvel. Again, they're in awe. This Jesus, you don't see him and just remain indifferent. And they again ask the question, who then is this? We've already seen he's a king who brings cosmic shalom. He's massive. But in this story, we find the second answer to our question. This Jesus is also a king who brings personal shalom. Just as the wind in the sea was taken from cause and destruction to now having a place and a purpose, so this man is taken from destruction to shalom. From wondering, listen to this, from wandering in the tombs of death to now marching through his city, proclaiming the very essence of life, Jesus. 
Like Jesus restores this man all because this king looked into the eyes of someone whose society could not sanitize or control and Jesus sees value, purpose, worth, image bearer, messenger of my kingdom. That's what this king does. You can't fit him into your box. Don't try. Yeah, he deals with the cosmic forces of evil. He calms storms and seas. He's massive, but he's not too big to go to the edge of the city and rescue the one lost crazy person who everyone else had written off. He's not too big for you. He's not. Here we are, left terrified and afraid. We're again asking the question, who then is this? We can't contain him. We can't fit him into our system or our way of thinking. We can't sanitize him. We can't just add him in and fit him nicely into our comfortable life. No, he disrupts us. He takes us through storms. He's all powerful and uncontainable. What do we do with him? I mean, if you're like me, I'm great with the Jesus that takes me to heaven when I die. That's cool. Like, I like that part of the story. The one who calls me to go through storms to be okay with giving up wealth for the sake of one's soul, that's a little much. And we really can't figure him out. If he really loved us, wouldn't he, I mean, this makes sense, wouldn't he eradicate all storms so we wouldn't ever have to face another? Wouldn't he take care of all demons so we wouldn't have to face the demonic effects of the fall anymore? I mean, I really think the disciples had a point when they asked, Master, don't you care? Because if you did, right, I can tell you he brings cosmic shalom, personal shalom, but we live in the already not yet, and we see brokenness all around us. We see hurricanes happen on a cosmic scale. We see personal effects of the fall, attacks on people and depression and illness and all this stuff from the enemy. And I found myself standing with the disciples saying, who is this Jesus? What are you going to do? How do I know we can trust you? I've learned a lot through Jesus, about Jesus through these stories. He's powerful, right? But the reality is more stormy seas would arise and more demonic oppression would come. We see it today, attack on the human mind, attack on marriages, mental illness, depression, disasters, what's going on? And here's what we must see, that these two stories we just read are about something greater. See, they do show us that Jesus is God himself in the flesh, but they're also snapshots of a greater reality in an unseen realm. See, you need to hear today that you can trust Jesus, not because he's containable, not because he's explainable, not because you can conform him to your thinking, not because he's safe, but rather because he's good. See, these stories continue to reveal, yes, he's the power of this king, but also his goodness. See, the storm had power, the demons had power. Yes, Jesus had more power, but the main difference I want you to see is that the storms don't love you. The demons don't love you, but Jesus does. That makes all the difference. If the one with power loves us, this changes the game, right? Like this is a big deal. See, these these stories are about something greater, the story about the disciples. Many scholars have pointed out that this story about the, the, the storm on the seas, that Mark is very intentional to conjure up images of the Old Testament story of Jonah. This is not an accident. I want you to see this. Mark wants us to see this. Remember, Jonah was caught in a storm, right? And just as Jesus was fast asleep in a boat during the storm when everyone else was panicking, so was Jonah. 
Just as the disciples woke up Jesus and rebuked him, trying to get them to help. So the captain of the boat in Jonah's story comes and wakes him up and says, why aren't you helping? We remember that Jonah responds. He says, it's my fault if you'll toss me overboard into the chaos. Let me take on the blame and the brunt of this storm. Then all of your lives will be spared. And they do so. And the end of the story is the same as with Jonah. The, the people of the ship are terrified and amazed, saying, who is this Yahweh, right? This, they confess that Yahweh is Lord. And the disciples also are terrified and afraid when the storm ceases. But that does seemingly seem to be when the parallel stopped, right? Jesus didn't hurl himself into the sea to calm the storm. He simply spoke. But again, there's something greater going on. Matthew 12, 41 gives us a hint. Something greater than Jonah is here. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. See, this isn't just about a material, a material chaotic storm. This is about the Son of Man, the true King Jesus, who will one day calm all storms. When we look at the story through the lens of the cross and resurrection, which we have the privilege of doing, we can see that a greater story is being told. See, we are the sailors who have no hope apart from Jesus. We are the faithless disciples. We were rightfully under the ultimate chaotic storm of darkness and death due to our rebellion against God. But Jesus, like Jonah, but way better, embraced the ultimate chaos and allowed himself to be tossed into the stormy seas of death. He allowed himself to be tossed into the dark abyss of God's wrath and he receives in his body the full brunt of the cosmic powers of darkness so that we might escape, so that our lives might be spared as we see in the story of Jonah. Most definitely something greater than Jonah is here and this is our king. This is how we know we can trust him because this is how much he loves us. He was cast into the ultimate storm on our behalf. Let's not stop there. Let's look at the story of the demoniac. Remember this man in a pitiful state of despair. What we need to see is that we are that man spiritually. We might not think so, but to one degree or another, we have been influenced by the effects of the fall, the forces of darkness, some by choice and some by nature, but we are experiencing this. And this is a spiritual picture of how we are without Christ, given over to evil, night and day, growing restless, wandering among things that have no life or value, cutting ourselves just to try to feel. And we're controlled by an evil greater than we can contain. But again, this story is about something greater. When we look at it through the lens of the cross, we see something much more profound and impactful. See, just as this man was unclean, he was tormented, he was oppressed, he was rejected, he was left naked and alone, he was bound, he was cut with stones and left barely recognizable, so too was Jesus. And willingly he did this. How do we know he's good and that he cares? Because he became what we alone should have become. He willingly switches places with us. He becomes the demoniac. He was numbered with the transgressors, cast outside the city and considered unclean. He was shunned and rejected by his friends and family, ultimately left all alone on the cross. He was stripped naked and he was mocked. He was betrayed for economic gain by a friend who considered wealth more valuable than his life. He allowed himself to be bound, cut open with rocks embedded in Roman whips that ripped his back and he was left unrecognizable. He allowed himself by the forces of darkness to be stripped, 
to be ripped open, no evidence left that he was even a human. We see that the image-bearing nature of the God-man, Christ Jesus, is all but gone. Ultimately, on the cross, this God-man breathed his last and died the death that should have been ours. And just as the pigs, he allowed himself to be driven off the cosmic cliff of death into eternal darkness instead of us. How do we know that he cares in the midst of storms within and without, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of suffering and pain, depression, illness, because he entered our mess with us. He embraced the ultimate disruption, the ultimate chaos, the antithesis of shalom. He does not stay distant. He does not fight for his comfort. Rather, he walks into it that he might save us. God did not just lose 2,000 pigs for the sake of your soul. He lost his own son. So we know now that Jesus cares, but what about his ultimate power? I mean, we've seen him show power, but what about when the one who calms storms and the one who casts out demons is dead himself. What do we do with that? What are we left to think? And we're reminded that Jesus has power by looking to the empty tomb where we know that Jesus wins. You remember how Jonah was spit up after three days because God commanded the fish to give Jonah up? So just like commanding a fish, God commands death to give up his son, and after three days he rises from the grave to rule at the right hand of the Father, to calm the ultimate storm, to bring ultimate shalom. Jesus wins the ultimate battle. We don't have to fear these temporary storms of life because Jesus has won the battle. As Jesus told the storm to be still and to stay still, Jesus looks death in the face and says, die and stay dead. This is ultimate and complete and final. Jesus plunders death. Do you remember back in Mark, Jesus said he was going to bind the strong man, Satan? In our story today, no human could bind him, remember? But in the upside down way of the kingdom, Jesus eternally binds Satan by allowing himself to be bound. No earthly human could bind legion. But Jesus binds death in Hades once and for all. And get this, just as in the story of the demoniac, all this is going on, and we're just left. When it's all said and done, over here saying, what just happened? We're left sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his robes of righteousness and in our right mind. And the only way Jesus could do this was for him to be thrown off the cliff, was for him to take on the full brunt of evil. This is how we know he's good and we know he's powerful. So we look to the cross, we look to the resurrection, and we look to the final resurrection, the eternal kingdom. One day, all brokenness will cease. One day, this pain will end. Every tear will be wiped away. Satan and his demons will be cast outside the city, never more to return, because the king himself will be here, and he, he is our shalom. He is our peace. Who then is this king? We can answer with full assurance that he is a king who personally enters ultimate chaos and completely brings ultimate shalom. He personally enters ultimate chaos on our behalf and he completely brings ultimate shalom. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this knowledge? See, this knowledge now forces a decision. It begs a decision. You can't see this and remain indifferent. Our decision in this already not yet age, 
when the prince of this air is allowed to have his way for a season is who will we look to? Who will we trust? Essentially, we're asking the question that the disciples were asked by Jesus, where is your faith? Because you have faith, but is your faith in the storms of this life, in the forces of darkness that you see around, or is it in Jesus? In my exhortation, I beg you today to trust in this king. He's good, and he's wise, and he's loving, and he will bring ultimate shalom. He's got a purpose, and he's got a plan. This king has faced everything that you will face, so you can turn to him, and you can encourage others to do the same. I know that's not easy. This week, for me, has been a heavy week. I've had many conversations with many folks, everything from depression to attack on marriages to poverty, and it's like I want to tell them that Jesus is good and that he's king, but I have to also pray and ask him to help my unbelief. We need each other, church. You can't do this in the privacy of your own room with the quiet time once a day. I need men and women of God to remind me of these truths, and so do you. There will be moments of doubt, and that's why we need each other. In close, I want to share a quick story of a family that I met recently that I was able to share with this good news. I went to a missions trip to Panama recently, and, and we flew into Panama City, and we were going to stay the night there, got in there in the evening, and then drive the next day about six hours to go minister in some villages and help train some other pastors. So we get there, we're staying in the hotel, and that first morning we're at breakfast, and I don't have time to go into all the details, but basically we, we met an American missionary, it's a total God thing, actually Brent and Brittany Von Kennel, members of our church, actually know him, crazy story, totally seemingly random, but God was working. It's a family who's been serving there for about five years. The man and his wife were there with three boys. We got to talk in, sharing stories, and they mentioned something about their fourth child. And so I was like, well, where are they at, you know? And they mentioned that they had a little girl who had passed away. Graham Davis, this is the guy's name. He shared how their little girl, Noella, was her name. She was almost three years old, and she had been tragically killed about a year ago, a little over a year ago now. They were out picking up two little girls to take them to church for the first time. And she climbed out of the car, and no one knew, and she was run over and, and killed. They had plane tickets purchased to go to the States the next day, and instead they were taking the dead body of their little girl to bury her wrapped in Panamanian leaves. So I just wept. I'd come into the trip kind of tired and numb emotionally, and God used this to really wake me up. But I just wept with him. He was honest, raw, and really said it's been the worst year of his life. I asked him for permission to share this with you all. They grieved in the States for a few months, and they were like, we can grieve here, we can grieve back where God's called us. And so they're back there in Panama, serving other little children. I encouraged him that he's got other little daughters in the faith now. But we were just honest about this, and he kept saying something that resonated with me that I want to share with you tonight. Throughout the course of our conversation, he probably said this statement 20 to 30 times. Jesus is king. He'd say, we don't get it, but Jesus is king. We don't understand it, but Jesus is king. And it was almost as if he was trying to convince himself that in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this unbearable, unimaginable brokenness, he was trying to convince himself that it was true. And I was able to encourage him to weep with him, to say, that's horrible, I don't know what that's like, 
but I do know someone who knows what it's like to lose a child. That is Yahweh himself. That if God doesn't waste the death of his own son, he's not gonna waste the death of your little girl. That her story will live on, that it will work glory, that if God took the death of Jesus and made it something that we shout and sing songs about, songs of celebration, then he will do the same and work glory with the life of your little girl. And this is what we have to do, church. I've, I've still been texting him and messaging him when I can. We just need each other. I didn't fully believe everything I was saying. Like, I'm like, God, do this work. Read the Psalms. We're just like, God, do something. So how do we apply this? Just preach the gospel to each other. When someone in your missional community or someone you love is facing job loss, mental illness, a broken marriage, poverty, depression, addiction, and I hate those things, anything else that life could throw our way, you can look them in the eye and tell them that this will not last, that hope is awaiting, and that even though you may not know the storm and the chaos that they are facing, there is one who does because he's walked through the ultimate storm himself. I close with this quote from an old hymn. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I have a few prayer directives for us, church.